Book Six, Chapter Four, Part Two of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee, Book Six, Practice, Chapter Four, Part Two, The Secret Prison. Yet there were ways of eluding the vigilance of the tribunals, of which bribery of the underlings was the most frequent. Even the alcaides were not insensible to such seductions, and a writer advises them to take warning by the example of those who enter office in honor and leave it in ignominy. The kindred and friends of prisoners were frequently people of means, and there could be no hesitation in outlays to circumvent the cruel rules which forbade to them and to the captives all knowledge of each other's fate. The Inquisition was by no means consistent in its treatment of those who thus violated its regulations. In 1635, Miguel de Maradillo, a bricklayer working on the roof of the prison of Valladolid, carried a message from one prisoner to another, informing him that his wife and son had been arrested. On another occasion, he told the same prisoner that his daughter had been relieved of the San Benito, and he conveyed a paper from him to them. In this, he seems to have been actuated merely by compassion, and his punishment was light. A reprimand, six months' exile from Valladolid, and prohibition of future employment on the building of the Inquisition. In 1655, Francisco López Capadocia, on trial by the tribunal of Valladolid, was subjected to a second prosecution for communicating with other prisoners, and was sentenced only to reprimand and exile. Greater severity seems to have been shown when employees of the tribunals were the guilty parties. In 1591, when Don Alonso de Mendoza was confined in Toledo on a charge of heresy, his friends outside established correspondence by means of the cook, Francisca de Saavedra, who conveyed the letters in the dishes. She admitted having received bribes to the amount of 8,160 maravedis, and was punished with a fine of 6,000 besides a hundred lashes and four years' exile. Still harsher was the treatment, about 1650, in Mexico, of Esteban Domingo, a negro slave employed as an assistant in the crowded inquisitorial prison. He was detected in carrying for money communications between the prisoners and their friends, for which he was condemned to two hundred lashes and six years in the galleys. Towards the close of its career, the Inquisition seems to manifest a disposition to relax somewhat in its rigidity. In 1815, the Madrid Tribunal referred to the Suprema a petition from Doña Manuela Osorno to be permitted to see her husband, Don Vicente Lema, then in its prison. The answer was that, after he had completed his declarations, she might be allowed to see him once or twice a week in the presence of an inquisitor, but only to confer on their domestic affairs. 
to this tendency may also be attributed the leniency shown to alfonso gonzales barber of the tribunal of murcia who made use of his position to convey letters and paper to francisco viascusa a prisoner and who was benegriently treated with a reprimand and disability to hold office under the inquisition a necessary feature of the prohibition of communication was that prisoners were debarred from the use of writing materials except under the strictest supervision some use of them was unavoidable when drawing up a defence or a petition to the tribunal opportunity for which was never refused but they were required to apply to the inquisitors for paper stating the number of sheets wanted when these were carefully numbered and rubricated by the secretary at the upper right-hand corner and were required to be scrupulously returned so that there could be no withholding of any for another purpose this device was prescribed by the suprema in fifteen thirty four and remained the invariable rule thus when fray vicente selles in valencia at an audience of june twenty seventh sixteen ninety two asked for two sheets of paper and on june thirtieth returned one and a half in blank saying that what he had written on the other half sheet was false and he had thrown it into the filth he was made to fetch it filthy as it was whatever quantity a prisoner asked was given to him and some consumed paper by the choir indeed fray luis de leon relieved the tedium and anxiety of his four years imprisonment at valladolid by writing his classical devotional work the nombres de cristo while as we have seen great care was taken to prevent prisoners from communicating with each other it by no means follows that confinement was solitary as a general rule it was regarded as preferable that male prisoners should be alone and that women should have companionship but there could be no hard and fast line of policy followed except that accomplices and negativos those who denied the accusation should not be placed together husband and wife were thus always separated but when occasion required there was no hesitation in crowding four or five persons together and in the careless confidence of common misfortune this often opened a valuable source of information for there never seems to have been any scruple in betraying that confidence in the hope of winning favor by reporting to the tribunal the comprising utterances of cell companions the object in keeping apart those who were accomplices was to prevent their encouraging each other in denial and agreeing on a common line of defence men who were confined by themselves asked for a companion and women more frequently did so it was impossible that discipline should be uniform at all times and places and we sometimes find it exceedingly lax it infers great looseness when in fifteen forty six the suprema felt it necessary to enjoin care in permitting prisoners freely to visit each other and in the trial of isabel Reiner at toledo in fifteen seventy we find her stating in an audience that in passing through the prison she saw a fellow-prisoner who informed her that her husband and estefan carriere were also prisoners 
and who asked her why she was imprisoned. In fact, as we gather from chance allusions in the trials, there must have been a certain freedom of movement. In the case of Benito Ferrer, in 1621, at Toledo, there was an investigation as to his sanity, in which the alcaide spoke of his going regularly to the cistern for water, and cooking his food like the rest, while the assistant described taking him to the latrines when desired. From the trial of Jacques Pinzon in Granada in 1599, we learn that, in the morning, the alcaide brought the prisoners water and returned after mass with their food. The mention of a pan to hold dishes shows that they had fire, and we hear of pots, spoons, and other utensils. There was evidently a diversity of routine in the different tribunals, and when Valdez, in 1562, was obliged to order that prisoners were not to go for their rations, because they met the servants of the purveyor, and that the alcaide must receive the food and carry it to the cells, it argues that, in some tribunals at least, a considerable freedom of movement had existed. In 1652, a minute code of instructions for the alcaide shows us what at that time were the regulations. On rising in the morning, he is to visit all the cells and see how the prisoners are. He is to examine carefully for openings through which they may communicate with each other. Doors are to be carefully closed, and he is not to leave with the prisoners knives, cords, or scissors. If scissors are needed, he is to stay while they are used and take them away. He is not to give them books to read without permission of the inquisitors. Rations are served twice a week, on Sundays and Thursdays, and on the afternoon previous he is to see each prisoner, ascertain what he wants, and set it down in a book so that the purveyor may provide it. Every nightfall he is to examine the cells to guard against attempts to escape, searching under the pillows for articles that would assist flight, or for writing materials. Prisoners able to cook their food will do so in a brasero. For those who cannot, the cooking is done by an appointee of the tribunal. All this shows a commendable desire to avoid unnecessary harshness. Yet the regulations enforce one hardship which appears to have been universal at all periods after the earliest. The prohibition of lights. A severe infliction for, in the obscurity of their cells, the hours of darkness must have seemed interminable. It is probable that at first this was not the rule, for in 1497 in Valencia there is an item of seven sueldos for dineros for lights in the account of the expenses of Alonso de Roman, who had lain in the secret prison for nine months and nine days. Of course, in the general venality of the period, prison officials were not always inaccessible to bribery, and money could procure relaxation of the rules, but, when detected, it was visited with a severity not often shown to delinquent officials. This is illustrated by a case in Toledo in 1591, when judicious liberality procured unlawful privileges, such as having cell doors open, 
allowing communications and other similar indulgences. Francisco Mendes de Lema, the alcaide, attempted flight, but was caught and sentenced to a hundred lashes, galley service, exile, and deprivation of office. His cousin and assistant, Miguel de Gea, confessed partially and was tortured without extracting more. He escaped with dismissal, disability for office, and four years of exile. There was one regulation which bore with especial severity on the innocent, while it was a matter of indifference to the heretic. This was the deprivation of all religious consolation during the period, often prolonged for years, of incarceration. It is difficult to understand this in the professors of a theology which teaches the infinite importance of the sacraments as aids to spiritual development as well as to salvation, especially when so large a portion of the prisoners were good Catholics tried on charges which did not infer formal heresy. Possibly it may be explained by the customary assumption of the guilt of the accused, who had thus incurred ipso facto excommunication, and the Spanish Inquisition had the example of the Roman, whose prisoners were similarly not allowed to receive the sacraments or to hear Mass. Yet the great canonist Azpilcueta, whose attention was probably drawn to the matter by the case of his client Carranza, thus deprived of the sacraments for eighteen years, tells us that there is no law justifying the Spanish Inquisition in this, though perhaps it may have special authority and also good reasons. To him, however, it appeared that the sacraments would soften the heart of prisoners and lead them to confess, while it was cruel to leave them exposed without defense to the assaults of the demon during the many years of their captivity. Yet the refusal was absolute. Fray Luis de Leon, whose three years of imprisonment, pleaded earnestly for the sacraments, but the only reply of the Suprema to his petition was to tell the Valladolid tribunal to finish the case as soon as convenient. While the sacraments were denied, sacramental confession was allowed, though of course the priest could not grant absolution. The earliest allusion I have met to this is an order by Cardinal Manrique in 1529, and in 1540 formal instructions were issued that, when a prisoner asks for a confessor, if the case admits of it, a proper person should be given to him. This privilege was somewhat abridged by the elaborate provisions of the instructions of 1561, which are framed to turn it to advantage. If a prisoner in good health asks for a confessor, it is safer not to grant the request, unless he has confessed judiciously and has satisfied the evidence. But as he cannot be absolved for heresy until reconciled to the church, such confession is not of full effect unless he is in the article of death or a woman in the peril of childbirth, in which case the canon laws are to be observed. If a sick man asks for a confessor, he shall have one, who shall be sworn to secrecy, and to reveal to the tribunal any commission entrusted to him, 
if it is outside of confession, and to refuse it if within confession. The inquisitors shall instruct him to tell the prisoner that he cannot be absolved, if guilty, unless he confesses judicially. If his judicial confession satisfies the evidence, he is to be formally reconciled before he dies, and, when judicially absolved, the confessor shall absolve him sacramentally, when, if there is nothing to prevent it, he may receive Christian burial as secretly as possible. If a sick man does not ask for a confessor, and the physician is apprehensive of the result, he must urge him in every way to confess. The advantage thus afforded by the confessional is illustrated in the trial for Judaism of Ana Lopez at Valladolid in 1637. She had denied, but was taken sick and declared by the physician to be in danger. To the confessor she admitted that, at the age of seventeen, she was taught Judaism, that she subsequently returned to the true faith, until, on coming to Valladolid, a woman perverted her. The confessor warned her that she must confess judicially. She authorized him to report her confession, and he absolved her sacramentally. An inquisitor with a notary went to her cell. When she repeated her confession, and gave the name of the woman who had perverted her, and, on her recovery, her trial was resumed when she confirmed her confession. It is the kindly rule of the church that absolution is never to be refused to the dying. He is to be saved from hell, and can settle the account of his sins in purgatory, or by an indulgence, or a mass on a privileged altar. With this the Inquisition did not interfere as its professed object was the saving of souls, and it even, by a carta acordada of 1632, permitted communion to dying heretics who had confessed judicially and satisfied the evidence. It required, however, the wafer to be consecrated in the tribunal, if there was time. If the haste was extreme, it could be brought from the parish church, but without pomp or procession. Even the veneration due to the Godhead had to yield to the secrecy which forbade it to be known that a prisoner was dying in the holy office. In the same spirit, when a prisoner died without reconciliation, the Alcaide reported it to the inquisitors, who ordered the secretary to identify the body and bury it secretly. It was thrust into a hole without his family knowing his fate, until if his trial was unfinished, his heirs would be summoned to defend his fame and memory, or, if it had reached a point where sentence could not be pronounced, they saw his effigy reconciled or burnt in an auto de fe. Even when he had confessed and been reconciled on the deathbed, we have just seen that his Christian burial was to be as secret as possible. When the trial ended in acquittal or suspension, if he had property sequestrated, the lifting of the sequestration would announce it to the heirs. Otherwise, it does not seem that there was any provision for their notification. Suicide in prison, which was not infrequent, was regarded as conclusive proof of impenitence, 
even if the prisoner had confessed and professed repentance. But his heirs were allowed to defend him on the score of insanity, failing which he was burnt in effigy. Sickness was of frequent occurrence, and was treated with creditable humanity. The instructions of 1561 require that the sick shall have every care, and that whatever the physician deems necessary for them shall be provided. Of course, the fulfillment of this command must have varied with the temper of the tribunals, but nevertheless the spirit dictating it is in marked contrast with the conduct of the jails of the period. When cases transcended the resources of the Inquisition, the ordinary course was to transfer the patient to a hospital, in disregard of the cherished secrecy of the prison. Instances of this are common enough in the records, and a single case will suffice for its illustration. November 6, 1641, Juan de Valdez, on trial for bigamy in Valladolid, asked an audience to beg for despatch, as he was very sick. This was confirmed by the alcaide and by the physician, who said that for nineteen days he had had a tercian, and was too weak to be bled, and moreover he was suffering from stone and strangury, that he could not be cured in the prison, and should be removed to a hospital. This was done, the hospital authorities being notified not to allow him to escape, and to keep the tribunal advised of his condition. In January 1642, he was reported as being still in mortal danger, but he recovered, was returned to the secret prison, and was sentenced on August 21st. The care of female prisoners was naturally a subject of some perplexity especially as the refinement of matrons and women assistants were unknown to the Inquisition. When the instructions of 1498 order that the prison for men and for women shall be separate, it does not infer that previously they had been herded promiscuously together, but that in future distinct quarters should be provided for the sexes, a provision which was not observed as it was deemed sufficient that women should be confined separately, so that there could not be communication between them and the men. The condition of helpless women, virtually at the mercy of their male attendants, in the secrecy which shrouded everything within the prison walls, can readily be imagined. And there must have been outrages coming to the knowledge of Jimenez in 1512, that aroused him to a sense of the dangerous opportunities existing, for in that year an order was issued threatening death to any attendant who should have intercourse with a female prisoner. The severity of the penalty measured the gravity of the necessity calling for it, but, like so many other salutary provisions, the tribunals were too merciful to enforce it on their subordinates. In 1590, Andres de Castro, alcaide of the Valencia prison, was tried for seducing a female prisoner, kissing and soliciting others, allowing communications between prisoners, and accepting bribes from their kindred. There were twenty-nine accusing witnesses. He denied the charges, but virtually admitted their truth by breaking jail. On his recapture, 
for this complicated series of offences he escaped with a hundred lashes, three years in the galleys, perpetual exile from Valencia, and disability for office in the Inquisition. A sentence which, when compared with the habitual severity of the tribunals, shows how lightly his sexual crime was regarded by his judges. It was not that the death penalty had been abrogated, for we find it repeated, in 1652, in the Logroño instructions to Alcaides. Doubtless, the rule mentioned above, that women should be gathered together in their cells, was designed to afford them protection against their jailers. In the not unusual case of the arrest of pregnant women, due consideration was given to their condition, and suitable temporary accommodation was found for them, during confinement, outside of the prison. Thus, in the case of Maria Rodriguez, in the tribunal of Valladolid, who was sentenced June 3, 1641, the delay in presenting the accusation, until September 16th, is explained on the record by her being pregnant and removed from the prison until she recovered. This was an improvement on the earlier practice, if we may believe the Yarena Memorial of 1506, which states that women in the throes of childbirth were denied all assistance, even that of a midwife. They were abandoned to nature, and many had perished in consequence. It was not only in the general prescriptions of the instructions that regard for the welfare of the prisoners is manifested. Several orders issued from time to time as to details are animated by the same spirit. Thus, in 1517, Cardinal Adrian told the Sicilian inquisitors, in a letter probably addressed to all the tribunals, that they must pay particular attention to the qualities requisite in the jailer. They must sedulously bear in mind that the prison is for detention and not for punishment. The prisoners are to be well treated and not be defrauded in their food, for which ample provision must be made. The prison must be inspected every Saturday by one of the inquisitors, and not fortnightly as provided in the instructions those of the prisoners who have trades, are to work, and thus contribute to their support. And, if the officials give the women sewing to do, they must be paid. An extract made, in 1645, from a book of instructions which was read annually in the tribunals, shows that this praiseworthy care for the welfare of the prisoners was the permanent policy of the Inquisition. It prescribes the utmost punctuality in inspecting the cells every fortnight, and learning what the inmates desire, reporting this to the tribunal, which decided what each one should have, and, if there was a surplus in the allowance for rations, from which it could be procured, the alcaide was at once to be ordered to see that the purveyor bought it. If he neglected anything, he was to be reproved, for the wrong committed in his lack of punctuality. Special attention was called to serving the rations in the morning, so that prisoners could prepare their midday meal. Meat was to be given daily, and only one day's rations at a time in hot weather, lest it should spoil. In cool weather, two days' supply, 
and this was so important for the health of the prisoner that it should be the special charge of some one, while an inquisitor ought occasionally to look to it. All this was admirable in tone and spirit. Unfortunately, its execution depended on its enforcement by the inquisitors, on their regular performance of inspection, and on holding the jailers responsible by rigorous punishment for derelictions. The duty of inspection by inquisitors had been prescribed as indispensable by the instructions of 1488, but it was impossible to make them obey, and complaints of their negligence are frequent. In 1644, we have the testimony of a contemporary that, in some places at least, it was regularly, if perfunctorily, performed, and the Logroño instructions of 1652 make it the duty of the alcaide to remind the inquisitors of it every fortnight, because it is customarily forgotten. The other requisite, severity of punishment for derelictions, was also lacking through the customary tenderness shown to delinquent officials. End of Book 6, Chapter 4, Part 2